This is the Epsilon Theory Podcast. As always, we uh, hope if you like this podcast that you will go on to the service you use to download it to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, I am Rusty Gwynn, and I am joined, as always, by my partner, Ben Hunt. Hey, Rusty. Hey, Ben. Uh, this is uh, episode seven of it our is. podcast now. And uh, we have a very particular topic in mind, but I will confess to you, I'm, I'm a little bit distracted. It's uh, our first day in probably five months <laughs> where the temperature has gotten above 50 degrees. And uh, it's, a, it's a shame to be here in the studio. It, 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 it really is, especially because you've got so much nice light here and we can see the blue sky for a change. Yeah. Uh, it is nice. Well, I appreciate you coming and, and coming over. And you did, in fact, come over you you drove over and given the topic of your your recent note <laughs> on inflation i'm wondering did you see any for sale signs in uh, any homes between here and the your uh, house in the studio you, you know I, I i haven't started the whole process of doing the, the the rigorous count every time i do the drive but i i didn't see many there 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 might be one maybe two but i i, I didn't see many i'll tell you we've we've gotten two uh broker or realtor led inquiries oh i don't doubt that saying, hey uh you know have you guys thought about yeah yeah <laughs> which if, yeah. if for those of you who are not familiar with with lower connecticut is as far from uh the reality that we all lived in two years ago as as is imaginable which is in fact the point you made in one of your most recent notes yeah that, that that's right so so we recently published a new note called it the the opposite of 2008 and it really hinges on as, as I think a lot of the things that, well, I write about and I think that, that all of us experience is our own anecdotes or what we see in our own life. And there was a very important, uh, you know, experience for, for, for my life as an investor going back to 2008, actually going back to the end of 2007. And, and what that experience was is that I had to drive to the to the office the 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 hedge fund I was uh, managing then, and it's about a twenty minute drive, and I was able to do it all through the back roads. And as you're saying, right, this is this is freaking Fairfield County, Connecticut, right? So so it's uh it's essentially so linked to Wall Street and New York and the in the financial world, and. Every day I'd make that drive and I'd be trying to, I, well, not trying, I'd count. I'd count all the for sale signs on the, on, on the drive. And, you know, I wasn't really doing it because I was really concerned about something. I've, I, maybe I'm on, on that OCD spectrum someplace, right, where I just need some sort of, of something to count, <laughs> right, when, I, when I'm driving or or. or, or exercising or really doing anything kind of tedious, I, I find the need just to count something, anything. But anyway, so I started counting for sale signs. And, you know, on this, this, this drive, there were probably mid single digits to high single digit for sale signs at the, the end of 2007. And I really started noticing an, an, an uptick in that number of for, for sale signs in Q1 of 08. To the point where, you know, there were, you know, mid-teens, probably about a doubling of the four sales signs. And by, call it May of that year, May of 08, and then, you know, of course, all through the summer and then into the, the, the dreadful fall that we all had. And that number doubled and then went up still more from there. So as, as, as I recall, the, the high watermark was something like, you know, some high 30s number of four sales signs. Mm -hmm on that 20 minute drive <laughs> to the office. And look, I, I mean, our, our hedge fund did really well in 08. Uh, it was kind of a career year for us. And, and one of the really big data points for me through all of that, something gave me well, something to, we all need something to kind of plant our feet on, <laughs> right? When we're, when we're doing things like making investments. And, and one of the things I was able to plant my feet on was the fact that in this community that was linked so inextricably to the financial world, everyone was trying to sell their house and there were no buyers. Well, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned that because it, it makes me think a little bit of your 
your discussion and in, in many cases of cartoonified data. Yes. And what's interesting is that even that number in the years that would follow would become itself cartoonified by local regulations in many of these towns in, in Fairfield County. I know that in New Canaan, and I think it may be true in Greenwich as well. You can put the for sale sign that, up. The, the, you were actually not That's allowed right. to put up a for sale sign. That's exactly so right. your, your metric became cartoonified. So if, it, it so. absolutely did. Right. <laughs> there was a response to try to control the presentation of for sale signs yep. because it it ain't good for property values, <laughs> right? It really, it, it, it really isn't. Well, it, it really was so important to me as this, these kind of groundings and non-cartoonified, non-abstracted data points, I think are really important for figuring out what's going on in the real world. And I think it's so important for all of us to have our eyes and ears open for what the world is telling us, right? Not what missionaries are telling us on CNBC, not what they're shaking their finger at us and telling us to think, but I... What are we seeing with our own eyes and hearing with our own ears in the world? Now, the reason I wrote this note was that I recently, years since I've made that, that trek, but um, about a week and a half ago, maybe it's two weeks now, I, I made that same drive. I said, all right, I'm going to count the for sale signs on that drive. And I counted them. The answer was zero. There were no homes for sale in this pretty long stretch of Weston and Westport, Connecticut. Yeah. And for those who aren't familiar with the area, we're, we are talking the, 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 certainly the, the New York metropolitan area, certainly the suburbs of New York. We are talking what I would describe as the, the true outer periphery of, yeah. of common commutable areas. Right? Yeah, that's so, right. That's right. It's a, so the train from Westport to Grand Central is an hour. Yeah. Right. And that, so that's that kind of the, that's the nearest point on your drive. And the furthest point from where, where, where you live yeah. would be closer. To, I mean, if you took the, the running spur, it would be hour and a half. Probably. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's exactly right. So it, 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 you're exactly right. It's at the, it's at the, it's at the far reaches, let's call it of what is commutable to go into New York. But you also have a lot of, I'll call it related financial businesses, right. like, like mine was in Westport, sure. right? That are very much part of the financial system, for sure, mm -hmm. right? But what's also, I think, true about this area is that it's not a transient community, but there are always people coming in and out. Yeah always people coming in and out. And it was, I, I, I'd never seen this before. It was so striking to me, but there were zero for sale signs up. And then this is how the world works, right? That, that same day, somebody clued me into this article that had been written by at the, the New York Times. It was looking at all these different metro areas about, and the title was, you know, whatever, what happened to all the houses, yeah. <laughs> right? Because in every metro area, I think certainly every major metro area in the in the country, the supply of homes has just fallen through the floor. Where in 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 most major metro areas, the supply of homes for sale is half or fewer what it's been over the last several several winters. Right? It's, it's seasonal housing supply is seasonal, sure. but. So making an, an apples to apples comparison, housing supplies just plummeted all across the country. Just, it just, I'm sure your conclusion was just every American household spending twice as much time sitting at home, you know, <laughs> flipping through Zillow. Is that? <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and, but this is the second chart. So it's not just that the supply of homes has gone down dramatically, of course, leading to an increase in home prices. Mm -hmm. But that increase in home prices has been matched by rental prices not going up yeah. in, in most major metro areas, actually going down yeah. over the last. Well, quarter. that's good news. That means inflation is lower. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and this was one of the points I made in the article, which is that if you look at how inflation is calculated, our, you know, that CPI number that the government puts out every month home prices don't 
get reflected in that at all. Not at all. It's treated as an asset. So even though, you know, your house is worth more, or you can borrow money on it, or it costs more to, 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 to buy it and pay a mortgage, none of that goes into cost of living. So instead, they calculate what's called their, their, their rent, rental equivalent, owner's rental equivalent. They say, well, if you're actually renting your house, of course you're not, what would you pay for it? And they make that evaluation based on, well, rental prices. So it's, it's completely perverse and it's completely nuts, but what's going to happen in terms of the official numbers is that I think the contribution of housing to our inflation numbers, my best guess is that we're told that inflation is going down, even though we experience with our own eyes, there are no homes for sale and that the, the, and that the price of homes has gone up just crazy, crazily. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny that uh, there's a, a lack of, of people who remember that the, the most obvious evidence of inflation in the wild is shortages. Right? Yes. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 that's right. And, and so I, I wrote this note because it, 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 it jibes with the other things that I'm seeing and hearing in the real world. Right, where, where, where everyone I've spoken to, and, I, and, I, and it's nice because I'm in a position where I, where I, where I hear from uh, lots of different uh, people and places, right? Without exception, people who are in the real world are talking about how the prices of things, of the supplies, whatever that supply might be, right, has gone up dramatically just crazy. And that their expectations are that the price are going to go up still, you know, crazily more. And none of that I feel like is getting reflected in what we're hearing from, you know, Powell at the Fed or, 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 or other places. It's starting to appear now in markets, particularly in interest rates, which we've seen go up dramatically. And so I wanted to write this note to say, how are we going to put together a, a program, right, to, to figure this out? Because we haven't been as investors in an inflationary world for like 40 years. So what, what, what does that even mean? And obviously the world today is very different than, than the world 40 years ago in a lot of important ways. So not only what does it mean to be an investor in an inflationary world, but what does it mean to be an investor in this inflationary world? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting you you put it that way, um, because I think that's it's first of all it's, it's a correct way, but it's also the way that I think we all tend to talk about this sort of idea of inflation. We we use that term that says or that that phrase, you know, none of us that that is investing today experienced right that environment. Right. right. I, I actually remember. You know, in uh, in my prior prior life, we had a mutual fund that uh, where the portfolio manager was, in fact, someone who had invested when there was still inflationary environment. And I'll tell you, it was a uh, um, it was a, it was a it was a great marketing boon, right? Yeah. Because yeah. you know that was sort of the thinking around you know what mattered. It was a muni, he was a muni bond PM, and it was this. It, I'm old enough to remember. I'm old enough minute. to remember. And and for people who were you know because at various points over the last five six years, there's been little what to do in a rising rate environment mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. you know, marketing pieces and all, and it intends to be framed around, wow, none of us remember how to invest in, in inflation. And I'll tell you, I think the problem is a lot bigger than that. What do you mean? So much of what we all do as investors, as allocators, as an industry is structured around conventions that themselves have emerged since the last inflationary environment. I and mean, if you think about the major organizing features of, of our markets mm -hmm. over the last 40 years, what have been the, the big things that drive how money is allocated and invested? It's the rise of the fiduciary financial advise, you know, financial advisor and the, kind of the move away from just sort of pitching stocks. Oh, right. right. None of that existed. Yeah, or, or it was or certainly very, very, you know, far more limited, yeah. right? It, it's the the emergence of the 401k, which... Right, that didn't exist. And IRAs, right? I mean, this is all really since the very early 1980s and then kind of in, in years 
and, and law changes that followed that. But even more, I think, in my opinion, significantly in the institutional space is that the industries, not to say that private equity didn't exist before, and certainly not to say that hedge funds didn't exist before. So please no one show me all those examples of, well, actually the first hedge fund. Actually, from, yeah, right, yeah, I, yeah. Which I get, right? But the the endowment model of investing, which was then later adopted by every pension institution mm -hmm. of other large mm -hmm. asset pools, not only in the United States, but in the world, emerged during that period, right? And as we think about the progenitor, right, of, of endowment style investing, I mean, most people would say is David Swenson. Yeah, Yale. Yale. Yeah. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, David Swenson became CIO of Yale in, in mid like in 85, I yeah. think. And so none of the major conventions right. that I think about them, like the, the fiduciary financial advisor, the 401k, the IRA, the endowment model of investing, those are all post-inflationary environment innovations. And so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the most fundamental infrastructure of investing and by that what i mean is what is what does it mean to be prudent in our industry what what does an investment policy statement look like what are the components of a strategic asset allocation how do we develop capital asset you know ex expectations and and projections over periods and how do we interact with consultants all of that is is built around the, the 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 foundation of the world that's existed since the last time we had inflation. The water in which we swim. The water in which we swim is a not is a non-inflationary and occasionally deflationary environment. Yeah, you know, I I really hadn't even thought about that because I you know we've we use that analogy and it's that old David Foster Wallace story. Yeah. Of, you know, the two young fish are swimming around in the old fish comes by and says hey boys you know how's how's the water and the two they kind of nod hey, yeah whatever gramps and then the the two fish swim by and one of them looks at the other and says what the hell is water <laughs> right <laughs> and 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 we've used that story that metaphor on a couple of different notes i hadn't thought about it in terms of the structure of I say it's not just Wall Street, but but how we think about money and investing, all of those kind of core ideas and principles. Well, of course you should have this endowment model where, you know, you're, and of course you should be, you know, getting advice from a fiduciary, right? And 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 of of course, of course, of course, these are all things that didn't really they they existed but they weren't they weren't the water in which we swim 40 plus years ago no and 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 what i think you'll we're, we're likely to find right and we don't know when or how this environment actually starts to manifest we're we're developing as you say the the program or the the framework for thinking about it but what i will tell you is that wall street and you know, beyond Wall Street, also asset management more broadly, is not designed to deliver solutions to changes to the water in which we swim. They're designed, as we've been talking about, we talked about in our Business of Wall Street podcast, and you know, the earlier podcast that we did on the the Wall Street and bets, Bitcoin, and then yep. the Bitcoin one as well. Yep. The business of, of Wall Street is to develop products, products. and yep. so what I think. Is, is the upcoming conundrum and problem for investors and the industry is that the solution is, an un, is, is a redeveloped understanding of, of the change in the water in which we swim, but the solution that's going to be provided is product. And yeah. so what you're going to see are increasingly rafts of these sort of usual suspect products that everyone kind of sort of thinks will, will work just fine in an inflationary environment. And that's sort of the solution. So you'll get a lot of the listed infrastructure or, mm -hmm. um, you know, public or listed kind of real assets type investments, you'll get the, you know, gold floating, float, floating rate, floating loans, rate note right, funds, right? Because right. oh, yeah, that, that, that'll have an, an, you know, an inflation sensitivity and rate sense, you know, the right kind of rate sensitivity that you want to have. And so you, you'll see those inflation sensitive baskets and product packages kind of put out there that are still structured around all of these conventions that we built up during these, these 40 years of, of, of non-inflation. And, and they won't be solutions to the fundamental problem. Hmm. Well, and 
you mentioned this, and this this is the purpose of this podcast, right? Which is not to say, okay, ta-da, here's the answer. Yeah. Because I really don't know. I this 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 all started with this realization that look, in many ways, I think the great financial crisis came out of a falling out in demand for uh, in the U.S. housing market. Yeah. And now we've got a falling out in supply in the U.S. housing market. And so I got to think, and I really do think, that it will have similarly enormous impact on markets, right? It's going to it's going to rhyme. It's not going to, you know, be the same. It's not going to be identical. And so I'm not saying that there's a crash coming. In fact, I think in general, what I'm describing is the opposite of 2008, not a gigantic deflationary shock, but an inflationary shock, a supply driven inflationary shock. And that got me to thinking, well, you know, what are the other similarities, differences, what, I'm calling these tent poles, right? What, what are the, 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 the big kind of organizing structural blocks of questions that we need to figure out answers to before we can figure out how to do better than just, oh, my broker tells me they've got a new, you know, inflation-sensitive product yeah. that they want me to buy, yeah. right? Or, or, or something better than, well, inflation, uh, I think gold, yeah, should I do that, right? You know, we got to be better than that. And, and, and the first step, I think, is to identify, okay, what are the kind of big areas, you know, I'm calling them tent poles, that we need to get, get, get a handle on, Yeah. So- right? So what's tent pole number one? Okay, okay. So, so yes, yeah, so, so, so thanks for the cues. Well, so we've got five of these <laughs> yeah. and we'll, we'll introduce them. We'll talk briefly and then we'll talk about what we want to do with all this. Perfect. Okay. The first tent pole for me is figuring out what happens to, what is the role in your portfolio, what's different and what's the same today about U.S. treasuries. Yeah. Right, That just that that, that core aspect of portfolio construction, you know, as it's been handed down from on high to us. And, yeah. and as I'm a true believer in, Absolutely. you know, as, as a child of the last 40 years of investing <laughs> history, right? I mean, you got to have treasuries as this core aspect of your portfolio, right? Because that's what will do well when these deflationary shocks hit. And, you know, that, that, that's what you need when times are tough. Not not only will that do well, and and a lot of the experience we've had for those deflationary shocks, it is the only thing. The only thing that, that would well. do do right. well, and and with the exception in a couple of those cases of of long term trend following strategies, right? Mm-hmm. So some CTAs did well. Um, some funds that you know were long short in various asset classes did fine, but by did fine, I mean they didn't go down a lot. Right. right. Uh, the, the, the expectation of something that actually had portfolio protective characteristics, by which I mean, during that kind of drawdown environment, they were negatively correlated with risky mm-hmm. assets. There was almost no other game in town than, than bonds. And in you know, most cases, long bonds, most especially. So, yeah, it, it, was, it was an asset that worked well. Most, in a lot of these environments, it was the asset that right. worked. And when it's been working well, and in, in, in times of crisis, the only thing that works well over a 40-year period, well, then that becomes the, the cookbook, the yeah. playbook. This is the standard. This is what you do. And, and, and so kind of my, my initial reaction is, well, of course, what you want to do is you want to then sell or, or as I, I've talked about it, you know, treat them as a tactical investment rather than a core investment, which is a whole different way of thinking. Right, which and and that's that I think that's hard, if not impossible. Well, especially it's it's made harder by the fact that the that the products that are going to be promoted increasingly are going to give lip service to this very idea. So mm-hmm. what you're very likely to see from people who are offering, you know, interest rate products, right, or you know, any kind of managed bond portfolio, whether it's passive or otherwise 
you're going to see a stark rise in the number that are offering what they call tactical right. portfolios. Right. Right. And so right, they're right, going right. to say, you know what, you, you know, you should have more of your fixed income portfolio in a tactical fund. Tactically. Yeah. And in practice, what that means is, you know, they're going to, they're going to dial the duration between, you know, four and seven years. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and it's going to be a product that charges active management fees for very little expression Actually, active of, management yeah, yeah of, of, a, of a tactical exposure right because our the water in which we swim is that the treasury bonds u.s treasury bonds are the safe haven asset that provides negative correlation to stocks in drawdown environments and those 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 deflationary shocks and therefore it deserves a large and largely static allocation within your investment policy that says, you know, for your average pension, because they're, they're allocating to other, call them stable value assets, mm -hmm. somewhere in the, you know, 20 to 30% yep. range for your, you know, more vanilla um, retail portfolio, where the, the equity culture has pushed things kind of away mm -hmm. from 60, 40 toward, you know, 80, 20, 30, 90, 80, 20, 20, 90 yeah, 10, yeah, basically, yeah. is that, you know, your, you know, your, your treasury bond is a portion of that 10, 15%, but overall duration on average for a lot of these retail clients is probably in that you know, 15, 20% range, but that's part of the investment policy statement, right? Yep. And so what's likely to happen is people are going to stick with that investment policy statement that says, yes, you, you still need this core holding of U.S. Treasury bonds at that, that level. And what we're going to do is add a couple, we're going to replace a couple of the vanilla exposures to our, you know, to UST or something like that with an actively managed tactical duration adjusting strategy offered to us by you know someone who came and sold that to us i guarantee you that's going to be what 90 yep. percent of, of institutions and advisors do and i i was i was thinking about this and i was thinking about kind of well what 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 do i what do i think you know not just about the the, the way it'll be expressed in product as you're saying but do i actually think that that relationship right of 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 that's what bonds are for in your portfolio does that still hold true and a big part of me says well yeah duh right i mean as as the as interest rates go up right the 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 fixed income whether it's bonds or whatever you you know fixed rates their value goes down. And I, I mean, that's, that's, that's like, that's like the law of physics in, as it applies to, 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 to markets and to money. Yeah. So I say, okay, yeah, yeah. And, and so, yeah, the, the products will come out and, and that's not maybe a great thing, but it's kind of the, maybe it's the, the only thing and it's in the right direction. But then I got to thinking about, well, you know, what if the water we're swimming in now, you know, what, what are these kind of basic laws of laws of money where interest rates go up, the value of this goes down? What if that's get, get, it is no longer really applicable today? Because what, what we're absolutely seeing over the last 12 years is, is that central banks will stop at nothing to maintain that smooth functioning, what I like to call a political utility aspect to capital markets. And if interest rates going up make that political utility untenable, right? Because either, well, if the interest rates go up, I'm talking about kind of, as you're saying, you said duration, longer term interest rates go up. And that makes mortgages more difficult, right? Uh, that makes the the cost of for, for governments to 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 support their own borrowing makes that a lot more expensive. If something is now impossible, then what we've seen is they'll stop at nothing to to prevent the impossible from occurring. Right. Right. And and we've already seen countries like Japan. I think Australia now is as well engaged in what's called yield curve control, which is 
going way beyond the setting the price of money, setting the interest rate for money at that, that very short end of duration, which is what really all central banks do, right? That's that, the core ability of central banks is, all right, we're going to say, what is the interest rate of, you know, cash, you know, or essentially cash right now? But it's to say, no, 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 we want to determine what is the price of money for money you borrow for, for 10 years from now, for the next 10 years. And we already do a little bit of that. I mean, that's what, what quantitative easing is. An operation twist. Exactly, yeah. right? So, so, so we're already doing some of this, right, where there is this explicit effort made by all central banks, including ours, or certainly ours, to influence the price of money at different points in the future by managing their own balance sheet. Right. And, and you mentioned Operation Twist. That's the notion of, okay, well, we're going to buy more longer dated stuff. And so we're going to buy more. Price goes up, yield goes down, interest rate goes down, rather than the short dated stuff. And then we can kind of uh, control the, the, the average duration of our portfolio. Do we own short duration stuff or long duration stuff to, to have that sort of impact? Well, yield curve control goes so far as to say, well, all right, that kind of, it has that impact, but wouldn't it be better if we just said, no, the, the 10-year interest rate is now 1.5%, period, and we'll buy as much or as little as needed to keep it at 1.5% forever and ever, amen. Right? That's, that's what Japan does, right? That, 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 that's the whole notion of yield curve control. And so if, if the government is going to say, nope, your bonds can't go down in, in, in value. We're going to put a floor on the value of those bonds. Then why would I want to sell them? Right, right, right. The answer is, I wouldn't. I, I, I wouldn't. And, and, and I'm trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? Because it's not like the government saying, nope, the price of the 10-year bond is, is X. And so it's got a you know, one and a half percent interest rate and nope, can't go higher than that. It's not like that's going to stop inflation in the real world, right? Or, or you know, on the contrary. Quite to the contrary. On yeah. the contrary, that's going to juice it enormously. But we won't be able to use a selling down of our bonds, right, to to address that inflation happening in the real world. This, this is what I mean by a tentpole, right? That, that, that there's this, this, this playbook that we know that, all right, we're going to inflationary period. Well, we need to reduce your bond portfolio. Well, that isn't going to be enough, let's call it, or it's not going to be particularly useful if your bond portfolio is going to be propped up in price. Yeah, I mean, and, and whether this is driven by a, what you're, you're talking about is, is yield curve control or whether we're just sort of thinking about the, the broader treatment by central banks of, of risky asset markets as a political utility. Yeah. You're, you're sort of making the, you know, the argument if you, if you do reduce your, your bond portfolio and do sort of say, Hey, I expect this to, to stop behaving like a, uh, you know, an asset that yeah. is, is going to diversify my equity exposure. You're, you're basically saying that at some point, the market and or the level of inflation is going to force the central bank's hand to, to fix remove it. the policy. Right, to fix, the, yeah. So yeah, it, it doesn't work until it does, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and it's, oh, the implications of this, and, and I'm increasingly thinking that because the impact of interest rates going up to what we would have, you know, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago thought of just a normalized level, that even if interest rates are, are quote unquote, going up for the right reasons, meaning that we've got actual growth happening and yeah. economic activity happening, when, when you look at the cost increase that that makes in terms of a government being able to finance itself, when you look at the impact that that has on so many of the engines of just economic political survival, 
I, I'm kind of of the opinion that, that, that yield curve control in this sort of explicit way is, is just a question of when and not if. Yeah, and, and I think the, the, the consequences of that policy also become a question of when, but not if. And I think there's another layer to it as well, which is, is investor behaviors that have accrued over 40 years. And even when, you know, let, let's say that, what, and, and again, I don't, I don't want to focus specifically on yield curve control. And right, right, that right, point. Right, Let, right. Even just the, the, the belief in a Fed put, right? A belief that central banks are operating you know, for the purpose of, of making sure that, you know, equity markets don't de decline right. too much, no matter which of those views you have, if and when it fails, you still have to develop a view as to why the ingrained behaviors of institutions that we've observed over the last 40 years would change. Because the playbook, which says, oh, crap, my equity portfolio is tanking, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I need to rotate into treasuries. That's not going to change for most institutions on a dime just because the it, there's yep. some in, kind of inflationary thing that seems to be happening here, right? I mean, for some, certainly it will, but I think in general, people are going to do what they always did, which is at the margin, they're going to buy what has been known as the the safe asset. And so even though I'm sitting here kind of saying, we need to start thinking about how the war in which we swim is changing to one in which you know, that that treasury is not the diversifying asset, the process from here to there goes through, I think, a number of permutations. Oh, yeah. yeah. In in and in, in, including a a change in our understanding of how long central banks can continue to pursue their current policy, and then how long institutional investors will continue to pursue their historical conventional responses to drawdowns in their their equity portfolios. Well, and, and that's tentpole number two, frankly, which is the central bank narrative, the, the narrative, the story that of central bank omnipotence. Mm -hmm. I don't mean omniscience. I mean, I don't mean they know everything, <laughs> but I mean omnipotence, that, that, that all market outcomes can be determined by the Fed. And they've got your back, so they're going to put this put beneath equities. If tenpole kind of number one goes down this road we're talking about, then they're also putting a, a, a floor right? They've also got your back in terms of the bonds. But what tools do they have then to address inflation in the real world? And my view is they ain't got them. They've built this Maginot line to protect against deflation. Right? And, and they can do anything in terms of pricing of bonds and, 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 and securities because they can just buy it. But that Maginot line against these deflationary shocks, price go down in either bonds or stocks, right? It doesn't do anything for what's happening in the real world in terms of real inflation happening again. Well, I mean, the only, the only remain, if, if you have two objectives and they're both, bond no go down and stock no go down you you've put all you're making the preference for us dollars and us as a safe haven market for all asset classes do a lot of work yes right that yes. that is your yeah. imaginal yeah. line right yeah. is that the rest of the world is is in the same you know crappy situation just crappier and it becomes sort of this argument that no you still got enough demand so that the the sort of put option on bonds is not that much of a pressure Right, which I think you could argue has been the 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 right point of view to have for the last fifteen, 15 years. years, and has been profoundly right in the face of a lot of people sitting there saying, well, "Gosh, this sure is going to be inflationary, yeah. right?" Yeah, and and so the, again, the the question, at least for me, and and I think for allocators, kind of comes back to, okay, yeah, we recognize the rubber band is stretched, but I don't know how big this rubber band is, and I don't know how much you know, that, that effective guarantee on, on both the, the role of bonds and stocks is, is in Yeah. Threat. And so, but, but this gets back to the original point, which is actually tentpole number three, which is behavioral change that comes out of COVID. Okay. Uh, right. And, and behavioral change, both in kind of, I'll call it the obvious sense of, oh yeah, everybody's going to go want to go out and do things right? That there's a pent up demand. That's the, you know, the famous, you know, <laughs> you can't, 
you trip over yourself constantly, you know, when we, in our work of kind of reading narrative with the description of pent up this and pent up that, right? But the, but the other aspect of this, and this is what I was getting at with the, the, the housing supply is, man, I, I you know, housing, there, there are no homes for sale because it, <laughs> nobody's looking to move. And I don't know that that goes away. I don't think that goes away in a, I, well, I think, let me put it this way, the demand increases and the, the un, kind of reduced supply exists, even if COVID goes away tomorrow. But I'm increasingly thinking that in a, I'll call it a perma-COVID world, where it's a chronic problem. That nobody wants to move? Uh, I think that the desire to move out of the city exists. So rental, you know, rents continue, you know, multifamily rentals are, are continue going to be, those, those prices will still be low. But I, I think the demand for, yeah, they want, to, they want to move, but who wants to move, I'll say, out from their home to that, you know, condo in the city. I see. I see. Right. Because that, that's what's happening now. Yeah. Is, is that there just are no homes for sale in Nashville, right? Or, or Austin, you know, you can get an apartment, you get an apartment easy, but you can't get that house. And, and if it, you know, and, and that certainly is, I think the, the common knowledge, I mean, there have been, you know, contrarians who continue to say this is all, you know, overwrought and New York and San Fr and Silicon Valley and San Francisco are going to be back. Just relax. You guys are all overreacting. Um, you know, but, you know, we haven't even talked about the, whether remote work is part of one of those things that permits, you know, a, a, a more permanent transition toward places that don't have multifamily yeah. uh, in any right. capacity. You, I, I don't think that Western Connecticut is any longer the outer periphery for a job in Wall Street. No. Right, because you don't have to commute into Wall Street. You don't have to go into Grand Central every day. No, you've got anymore. meetings twice a week that you need to roll in for, and then it's remote. And you know, even if that's not a truly capital P permanent thing, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's pretty attractive. It certainly seems like there are permanent features of that within finance, at least. And and you know, some of these things have been part of technology for for a much longer period of time. I, I yeah. think, and this, this is, but this is one of the big temples we got to ask the question, right? We got to figure out the answer for it. Are there very long-lasting, deep behavioral changes in consumer and social behaviors that come out of COVID, whether it goes into a ta-da, COVID's cured world, or we go into a, I'll call it a perma-COVID or chronic COVID world where you got to get your booster shot every every year. Both those cases, I'm increasingly thinking, are inflationary worlds in terms of their impact on the U.S. housing market, which is still the biggest single asset class in the world. Yeah, I have trouble parsing that because I, you know, a a world in which COVID is, you know, an endemic and not, you know, not not as bad as obviously the experience right. that we had over this last year, but where it it changes things behaviorally. I still think of the backdrop of that maybe outside of housing is being generally deflationary. deflationary. I do too. Yeah, I, I, I do too. But when I look at what is happening in the U.S. housing market, and again, I'm playing this off my own experience yeah. in 08, where man, that was the thing, right? And, and all of these business models, all, you know, is all certainly in the, the financial, it was all geared around the U.S. housing market. And I, I don't think a lot has changed in that regard. It, and this plays out in so many different ways, right? So I, I remember 05, 06, 07, the enormous amounts of um, home equity withdrawals, cash money coming out, that then was a tailwind for, I mean, everything, everything under the sun. Man, that's happening now too, right? So if you, you, you can't move, you don't want to move, uh, it doesn't really impact your labor mobility if you're, you know, white collar or, a, you know, a tech worker, right? Because you can start a new job because you don't have to move. You can just do it remotely from anywhere. But because there's no supply, you see that you see what's happening to home prices, housing prices in yeah. your neighborhood. What do you do? You refinance. Yeah. You refinance. You, you take some money out and you build or you buy. And, and that's exactly what happened in 05, 06, and 07. Right. So 
that's what I'm saying that, that for all these reasons, right, whether it's so, you know, barring like a new variant surge where it becomes a emergency situation again, I'm increasingly thinking that a chronic COVID world that's manageable, I'm thinking it's inflationary. That's interesting. So I'll, I'll say that I, I probably disagree, but what I agree on is that it, it is absolutely a tentpole and a fulcrum on which I think allocators who are determining when and how and how to quantify both the risks and, and magnitude of inflation need to be thinking about I'll it. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take that. All right. So we've, so we've got three tentpoles, right? Yeah. So, so it's first is treasuries and bonds and what happens to them. The second is that, you know, the belief, the common knowledge, what everyone knows that everyone knows about central banks, which is that they determine market outcomes. And I, I think that comes under pressure. And maybe not just equity market outcomes. Right, exactly. Right, world. right, yeah. right. And the third tempo we got to figure out is, well, are there, what are the long-term consequences, behavioral changes that come out of a COVID scenario and COVID world? Which, to be clear, since we're talking about behavioral changes, could long outlive COVID itself as we know yeah. it. So, so that this is this is why this fits into a water in which we swim discussion. Right, 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 right. We're not overstating. What, what's, what's the water in which, you know, I'll call it, you know, survivors of the Great Depression. So we all have stories, you know, of a, a grandparents, you know, never took on debt. Right. Or, 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 you know, we're, we're ultra cautious. My father was that way. Oh, I mean, I, I suspect you grew up in, in Alabama. Yeah. You know, my grandparents were from Texas, not to make us from two different generations, but we are from two different generations. So my, my grandfather and your, 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 my grandmother and your mother, I suspect never threw away aluminum foil. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> never. So I, never. I knew a world in which the idea of not throwing away aluminum foil was a thing. And I, right. I was born in 1982, so. Yeah, and so so these things, the, these events like COVID have these very long-term behavioral changes that when I'm thinking about it, I'm kind of thinking, you know what? I know COVID emergency was definitely deflationary, but I'm thinking that perma-COVID, chronic COVID, that can be inflationary. And that's that. That was kind of the aha moment for me about this note. I think you're wrong, but I hold to I that. Lo- fair, I hold loosely enough. to that view. Fair, fair enough. All right. So, so, so that's three tent poles of questions. I really think we got to figure out. Yep. Right. Treasuries, central bank narrative, and then uh, behavioral changes. Right. The fourth is also one that's happening right now. What are the fiscal policies that are happening today and its impact on markets? And inflation. And I think in a nod to the, the previous tentpole, behaviors and expectations yes. for the common knowledge about what- What's government going to do next what, time? Yeah, what is, and what does government do sort of yeah. at large? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, so I, there was this story as somebody was, um, there were, it's a weird golf story, but so, so bear with me for a second, all right? Just a very brief I will, second. when someone says it's a golf story. I know, I, I know, I know, no, 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 it's not, it's not my golf story. Oh, that's it, even worse. Yeah, 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 I'm right. getting a third hand yeah, no, no, golf no, no, story. No, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a Tiger Woods golf story. Okay, that's better, right? okay. And I think it was Tiger Woods, I think is when he withdrew from a tournament. Okay. Right, it was the first time he drew, withdrew from a tournament. And and I remember talking to somebody and saying, okay, he did that, and that the person said, okay, He's never gonna, you know, match Nicholas's record for for majors. And somebody said, well, "What what do you mean?" He says, "Well, it's it's not a big deal." So you withdrew from the tournament. He says, "No, no, no. Once you the first time you withdraw from a tournament, it makes it so much easier the next time you want to withdraw from a tournament, and the next time you withdraw from a tournament, and and that's where I think we are now, in terms of government policies, fiscal policies, and their sense of how that has to be tied to taxation, how that has to be applied to deficit, how that has to be matched, or that, that it doesn't have to be. You know, once you make the SNP, right, once you say, eh, we're going to cut taxes and, uh, yeah, that's just going to add to the deficit. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, there there have been a, a great many Rubicons crossed at once. Yes, yes, yes. You're right, and 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 I think that that similarly, when I look at this most recent stimulus, and let's call it for what it is, it's a stimulus. It's two billion dollars in stimulus, not rescue. No, right? Stimulus. I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, inflation. I mean, I mean, how can it not? Yeah, and and I mean, I suppose I'm, I'm sort of I'm sort of delighted in a way to hear you describe it that way. Yeah, stimulus. Yeah, yeah you thought <laughs> I'd take left, a kind of a, left, good, a good lefty social my lefty friends. Well, yeah. but, I mean, of course I agree, and you know, the, the framing I would put it in is that it 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 is a rescue for some, right? Because I think as we look at, at aggregates of house, you know, household cash holdings and and you know credit utilization on average <laughs> the american household's doing fine right the 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 policies that have been passed the the legitimate what i would say um rescue policies that were passed in 2020 appear to have stemmed the the tide of the effects of of coronavirus for most american households which other than i think the the life and very real quality of life impediments that all of us experienced and in many cases the the dreadful yeah. physical and life consequences that came out of it most american households came through it fine and when, but when i say most there's two exceptions one of which is the the very truly poor and the the, the working poor who unemployed it, working poor and, yes. and especially in, in yes. industries which were yes. truly heavily affected which could be you know, on the on the on the retail side, on entertainment venue management, on um, you know people who are working in you know non-educational capacities within schools that have been closed, yep. and people who are working in in food service and um, you know in bars and restaurants, and and so a lot of those people I think have been in, in influenced and, and impacted inordinately, and they're not really contributing as much to the aggregates, and so I think this is a rescue package for them, and I don't want to you know deny that, but it's it. it for everyone else except those working poor and I think small, truly small, truly businesses, small businesses, not yeah. small, medium enterprise, but no. I'm talking fewer than 10 employee, yep. local, less than a million dollars a year in revenue Crushed. kinds of businesses have been annihilated. Right. And, and, and I don't actually, what's funny is despite the size of the yeah. stimulus package, I actually don't think it does very much for them, but for otherwise, it's just throwing money in. Hands no, no, spent. no, Rusty, it's, 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 it's like every other thing we do in this country, it's trickle down support, right? It's trickle down, right? You usually, you anyway, I'm off on you're a, trying a to turn here. your You're trying to turn it back into a lefty comment here. I kind of am, because <laughs> what I've always been in favor of from the very, from writing this stuff for, for a year now is a federal safe harbor for unemployment, right? If you don't feel safe at your job, you should be able to not, you should be able to quit your freaking job right, under COVID. And then there yeah. should be increased from the federal government unemployment support, like we did in the first CARES Act. Right. Right. But but sending a, you know, a, a, a stimulus check to, all right, Harper, I'm going to, you know, Harper's our producer, right, pick on you, right? I, I mean, sending you a stimulus check made was was ridiculous. I know, I know. She's she's she's, she's, she's very she's professing, right now. you know, shock here. <laughs> but but this is what I mean, right? It's it's not. Anyway, I I do get wrapped up about this stuff. But, but this is not going to be the last. Two it's not trillion. the last two trillion. We have we even even had infrastructure week, Ben. Or no, I'm sorry, no clean energy week. Sorry, yeah, we don't do, yeah, we're not yeah, doing yeah. infrastructure yeah, yeah, yeah. anymore. If, if it were if it were Trump, it would be infrastructure, you know, or you know, make America great act. This no, would it's be green. the the green energy, the, the green make America green act. Uh, we haven't, we haven't gotten into um, green new deal. I was trying to think, yeah. uh, uh, student debt, uh, Jubilee, right. Oh, yeah, so, 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 so that, that, that's clearly coming. Whatever taxes will come will be under the taxes as justice, right. That the whole notion of taxes to pay for things, that's very quaint. That just doesn't exist anymore as an idea. Well, and, and, the the one truth of American politics is that every debate is marginal, right? So if you if you if you propose to raise or lower taxes, 
the debate is never, well, what is the appropriate rate of taxes? And does that that increase right. or that that you know reduction put it at a place that is more or less appropriate and fair than, than what it was before? It is you are lowering taxes by this much for these people and you know raising it by this much for these people. Right. Is that is that marginal change unjust or just? That's the framing of every political Everything. debate, which means that now that there's been a two trillion dollar stimulus bill. The, the prospect of debate over uh, student uh, loan right right is, is not going to be sh- should we be forgiving you know hundreds of billion dollars in loans it's going to be now should we really be doing this for everyone or maybe we should have a cutoff it becomes a marginal discussion rather than a why are we really even talking about this at all discussion that it would have been even you know a few years ago and you and I can certainly argue on, you know, whether the, a specific policy, right, sure. or the margin is good or bad. I think what we're both saying is it is. It is. It is. So, you know, universal basic income of which this stimulus is part of, right, or, or you know, in the broader heading of, of, of MMT, which yeah. we've written a lot about, uh, taxation for justice, right, as which is clearly the way, and, and, and that's not just geared towards, you know, tax increases for as a question of justice, right? But was also with the I like to call it the the tax cut and Wall Jobs Act, right? Yeah. Of of two thousand, which was which was an enormous tax cut or change in tax, but but for a specific notion of equity, right? Right. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's all the same thing. Just, it just has different expressions depending on which side of the aisle you're on. So, so figuring out, I mean, frankly, frank on this one, I'm not really sure that, that there's that much to figure out other than Correct. when this intersects with, when this, this tide that is very clearly rolling in intersects with the common knowledge on inflation. Yeah. And, and where I think it, where I think this, this really hits is not in current inflation statistics. Again, we've, we've created this cartoon that in many respects makes it impossible for the current inflation statistics to go up rapidly and at a, very, at a place where it forces government decision makers to say either, oh, we got to raise taxes because yeah. that is what MMT says. Inflation is problematic. You raise taxes, yeah. right? That's the break, right? It, I don't think our metrics are constructed in a way that will ever require a decision maker, whether you're at the Fed or you're at, you know, in Congress to say, we either got to raise interest rates or we got to raise taxes. Yeah. What I think it'll always be, it'll, it's constructed in a way that the Fed can always say it's transitory. And if you're in Congress, you can always say, well, but it's, it's, we, we have to do it. It's a matter of justice, fairness, et cetera. And anyway, it's worse in China. So yeah, right, right, right. Don't blame right. us. Yeah, don't blame us, right? So, but where it can't be controlled is in the inflation expectations, which plays out in things like home prices, yeah. right? Which plays out in things like, well, you know, what what am I going to charge for my supplies going on here? What am I going to charge for real assets? And that, ta-da, right, gets us to the fifth tentpole. Yeah which is how do we think about real assets, which have always been kind of, again, part of the playbook. Oh, it's inflationary time. Well, you want real assets, right? Real cash flowing assets, pricing power, all that good stuff. Yeah. And the flip side of that, which gets back to your point about how, you know, the water in which we swim as investors has changed so dramatically over the last 40 years in terms of the structures and, and the, the instruments, what happens to what I like to call these abstracted securities, the casino games that are markets today? Yeah. Because I, I, there's a disconnect here, right? The, the, all of the products, all of the fit, what we invest in, they are these abstractions. They are, you know, I like to call them casino games. They are very far from a fractional ownership share in a real world company, making a real world thing based on real world assets with real world cash flows. I think, and this is kind of my big idea, right? Is that we got to get closer to that as opposed to the abstracted securities. But 
what is the bridge in Wall Street to get to that? <laughs> well, the bridge is the bridge is reality at the corporate level, okay. right? Because okay. what what you end up finding, right? Because I think as as we've understood now at the end of the 40 year cycle what's been clear is that what you wanted to have was a secular growth story mm -hmm. because if you know that costs are easy enough to manage throughout your entire business and, and in any deflationary world they are they easy. Are. The, the costs are always going down your That's input right. costs are always going down whether it's labor or whether it's materials or or you know a, a basic product that you're bringing in from china yeah Right. Globalization plays into this all too. It's the, all going down. All is, so if you've got that under control, then your second question is, okay, what, what, what are my costs of capital, mm -hmm. which are zero today. Zero. <laughs> so okay. you've got that sorted out. And if you've got your cost structure and your cost of capital sorted out, there's only one thing left that matters. It's how quickly can you grow your revenues? Yeah. And so what emerged was because that was the reality of our world, what both management teams and you know people who are focused on you know creating transactions in Wall Street had to do is focus on creating narratives of secular growth and profit and scale and, and scale, scale yeah. right profitless revenue growth is fine because it's that it's that revenue growth that's going to get you the multiple. So and and I think what what people tend to do whenever they look at well what would happen in inflation in their environment is they they start thinking about things in this almost sort of pseudo empirical way where they look at, well, here's what equities did in the, in the, in, in, in yes. the months where inflation yes. sort of spiked yes. up. It's like, no, 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 no. The, the narrative of secular growth as the, 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 the objective of a C-suite or of people who are allocating capital goes away whenever those two other variables right. come into question. Right. And the, so at some point, the thing that that changes it is the reality that forces the the, the corporate boardrooms to realize, okay, you know we're we are not getting the stock price response that we used to get from selling a narrative of secular growth because well in an inflationary environment everybody's every, got growth everybody's got some top line growth yeah. so our you know our our twenty percent Kager no longer looks as as you know remarkable and special as it did you know five years ago and so. Now, all of a sudden, there, there are these other very real considerations that are actually hitting earnings and, you know, and, and, and the bottom line. So there is a reality that comes. And with that reality will come, I think, a, again, a change in the water in which we swim of how all of the assets that are wrapped into this abstraction that is a corporation and then a further abstraction, which is that corporation's stock. Yep. And then that further abstraction of the stock into what is that stock's yep. narrative? Yep. Th that collection of assets and the way in which these businesses are operated will begin to transition. The assets which looked really attractive in a secular growth environment by the good management teams will start to be shed in favor of the assets which start to look better for an inflationary environment. And so there's a period of time over which the corporations themselves that are listed on exchanges in the United States and in other countries around the world start to look different if we yeah. are in a sustained inflationary environment. But not to use, you know, the the the, the Fed's language, you know, my on you know on my own. But I mean, there is a transitory period in which that hasn't happened yet. Yep. Right. In which that reality has not manifested itself, and in which corporate America has not responded as I think this is the beauty of markets as I think they will and as I know that they will and in that interim period getting back to this question of real assets and abstracted securities there's a real problem of how the investor actually accesses good exposure but see this is the thing and this is where we're going to finish up this 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 podcast because this is a real opportunity yeah right the the opportunity then is for I'll call it active management but shoot, let's call it us, right? Let's call it the Epsilon Theory Pack, right? The opportunity is to figure out, well, if top-line growth is no longer going to look special in a corporate strategy in terms of being rewarded with a better stock price, what will look special? What, what, what has a winning narrative and works in an inflationary environment when your input prices are going up not go down when your cost of capital is going up, not stuck at zero. 
right? Right. What what is what is it that looks special? And let's start looking for companies that have that. And what is accessible to investors who can't just go pick up right. farmland acreage right. or exactly. an operating company or an in, intellectual in property asset other than, you know, a fractional share of a of Kobe Bryant dunking yeah. video. <laughs> right, 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 right. Or, you yeah. know, because I think if, if, the, if the investable universe for a retail investor to respond to this problem until corporate America makes equities the answer again. And, right? and to be clear, they, they you will. and I are retail investors. We right, are. right, right. When yeah. they, if it was available to us. Yeah. Unfortunately, most private equity funds and hedge funds, you know, I would not meet their minimums. <laughs> no, right. No. And, and so we're, we're part of this group too. And, and if the answer is, well, gold, silver, Ugh. Bitcoin, well, I'm not saying those aren't answers. I know. If right? the breadth of your expression of this idea is limited to three things, which are intensely driven by the behavioral responses of, of huge swaths of investors whose behaviors are unpredictable. I don't think that's enough breadth to right. really express this. Right. And it's very unsatisfying. <laughs> and, and buying a REITs portfolio and an infrastructure portfolio in the listed space. A floating bond or a floating rate bond or, or a loan portfolio, right? That ain't it, Chief. That ain't either, <laughs> it either right? But well, I, I think yeah. there's a real opportunity yeah. here, Rusty. I, I really do. And so that's what we're trying to build on our website, right, with, with what we call the ET Forum, yeah, where we've got now, you know, 700, uh, you know, actively participating PAC members trying to figure this stuff out. And, you know, it's what I'd recommend or, or hope everyone on the listening to the podcast comes and checks out, epsilontheory.com. Absolutely. And what we also hope everyone listening to the podcast does is go on to the service that you uh, use <laughs> to download this. And uh, like, share, and subscribe. Give us a thought. Also, reach out to us directly. You know, send me your, uh, send an email. We're always happy to talk. Um, you know, Ben's happy to talk on Twitter. <laughs> me less. Uh. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode, and uh, we'll see you in a week or two.